0: God, I pray that you would uh, cause our hope now to be less wavering. God, I pray you would speak to us through your word in a powerful way. God, we want to ask you again what we've asked you many times, that your word would not go forth in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. God, I pray that you would... Uh, cause us to be glad in the salvation that you have brought in Christ. God, I pray that you would work in each one of our hearts whatever would be pleasing to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you'll open your Bibles, please, to Acts, Acts 6. Again, last week we began to look at the criminal trial of a Christian named Stephen. It's a trial that ends with an execution. Stephen became the first disciple of Jesus to die for his sake. And we read about the charges that were brought against Stephen at the end of chapter 6. We read about the defense of Stephen in chapter 7. And Stephen's story is important not only because he's the first Christian martyr, Stephen's story is important because his defense comes at one of the great hinge points in all of history. When Stephen was put on trial by the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem, it's like a great fuse was lit. And when that trial was over and Stephen was martyred, then the gospel message exploded out of Jerusalem. And Jesus began to save sinners from many different places, many different peoples, not just Jews any longer. That starts happening in Acts 8, right after Stephen's defense. So here in Acts 6 and 7, we come to the bend in the road. In God's plan of salvation that turns toward people like most of us, Gentiles. And the way Stephen responds to the charges that were brought against him that prepares the way for us to understand this radical expansion of God's salvation which is still spreading and expanding on the earth today. So look at verse 12 of chapter 6 and see again the charges that were brought against Stephen. In, in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court. Verse 12. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon Stephen and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man, Stephen, never ceases to speak words against this holy place and against the law. Okay, those are the two charges. His his accusers explain more fully in verse 14. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Same, Same two ideas. As Stephen proclaimed Christ as the Messiah, he was accused of speaking against the holy place, the temple in Jerusalem, and of speaking against the law of God which God gave to his people through Moses. Now, Jesus did come to fulfill both the law and God's purposes for the temple. But but Stephen's accusers were twisting whatever Stephen was teaching along those lines. And at the beginning of chapter 7, then, the high priest demands that Stephen give an answer to these two indictments. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. The high priest said, Are these things so? And then Stephen begins to respond not by directly answering their accusations, but instead by recounting the history of Israel. He he speaks of God's working with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Solomon. What? What does that have to do with anything? Well, Stephen retells the history of Israel with a certain slant. He, He puts together a few pieces of Israel's history... To bring out patterns. Patterns that do address the accusations made against him. So last week when we looked at Stephen's defense. We we pulled out the thread that ran all through chapter 7. They responded to their charge about the temple. And Stephen tied up that thread in a conclusion in verses 48 through 50. By quoting from Isaiah 56. Look there at verse 48 of chapter 7. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, verse 49, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? Well, that's Stephen's final argument on this front. God was never confined to the temple in Jerusalem. In the history Stephen just finished telling, proved that point many times. And so it wasn't blasphemy. It wasn't wrong for Stephen following Christ's teaching to say that God was about to move on from the temple in Jerusalem and that Christ had already begun building a new temple on the earth, one made of living stones, people that that he was saving into his church. They were the new holy dwelling place of God on the earth. And so God's indwelling presence is about to go out of Jerusalem in all directions in Christians when they went out from the city to make more disciples of Jesus from all nations. Now this week, we're going to pull out of chapter 7 the other main thread that runs through Stephen's defense, and it's his response to the other charge that was brought against him, that you, Stephen... You, you Christ preacher, you are opposing the law of God. You are opposing Moses who gave us that law. Now, before we trace that thread through his speech, I want to show you the conclusion that he is building up to. So, so I'm sacrificing a bit of suspense here for the sake of clarity, and I'm going to give away the final punchline first. So right after, Stephen ties up his argument about the holy place. we just read he then ties up this other argument about the law and for now I just want you to see the last few words of verse 51 where Stephen says as your fathers did so do you you see that that's his summed up response to his accusers you're just like your dad and your grandpa and your great-grandfather and so on as your fathers did, you do too. You guys are filling your forefathers' shoes, which means you are the ones who are opposing Moses. You are the ones who are opposing the law of God, just like your ancestors did way back when. Stephen has picked out a few panels from Israel's history to show us this. And so in chapter 7, what we're going to see today are our patterns of resistance to God's law. And patterns of resistance to God's appointed deliverers. And then we see that pattern repeat in how the people responded to Christ. And then we see the same pattern repeat again in how the leaders respond to Stephen and treat him. And here's what you need to ask yourself when you see this pattern on repeat throughout this passage of Scripture. Ask, are these patterns repeating themselves in your life? And how? Which side of the pattern are you on? The Holy Spirit wants to show us that the way things go down in Acts 7 is the way things have always been and the way things still are. Now, in most of Stephen's defense, here's, here's the main point that we hear this is our first main point a pattern of resistance consistent before Christ. A pattern of resistance consistent before Christ. This stretches from verse 2 all the way to verse 50. This is a long point. Stephen begins his history of Israel with the first fathers of the nation. So go back up to verse 2, chapter 7. Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. "...before he lived in Haran," verse 3, "...and said to him, "'Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you.' Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after Abraham's father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet God gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession." and to his offspring after him, though he had no child at that time. Verse 6, And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And they became the twelve tribes of Israel. So Stephen first rehearsed how God began to make his people Israel by making promises to Abraham and his offspring. And then to confirm these special promises, God made a covenant with Abraham. And then God gave a special physical sign that represented these covenant promises, the sign of circumcision. So Abraham circumcised Isaac, and all generations of Israelites would do likewise after that. God told them to. It was a physical sign that they were the people who had inherited these promises of God's blessing. That God made to Abraham, to Abraham's family. It was a sign that was supposed to mark them off as being set apart for God. Now the Jewish leaders who were listening to Stephen would have no problems with anything Stephen said in this opening statement. They may have liked it. They were all descendants of Abraham. No doubt they had all been circumcised on the eighth day, just as God commanded Abraham, which which God commanded again in the law of Moses. But Stephen doesn't just say all this for the sake of saying something that his hearers would like before saying something that they wouldn't. Now, all of this is a setup. Now, in part, it's just a setup for the story that Stephen will tell next in his, Israel's history. But more importantly, Stephen is, is appealing right off the bat to his hearers' deepest sense of identity, their deepest sense of security, in being right with God, the, the thought that they might have, I'm a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm circumcised on the eighth day. I, I'm, a, I'm a recipient of God's special promises and God's blessings. I, I have this sign that it is so circumcision, it, it marks me off as a member of God's people. Well, then Stephen says in his big conclusion, in verse 51. You guys are actually uncircumcised in your hearts and in your ears. You see that? Ouch. You may have some external sign of being included in God's blessings and promises and people, but on the inside, in your hearts, in your ears, you're not. You cannot depend on any external sign or any religious ceremony, even one that God has commanded. You cannot depend on any family history to make you right before God. What matters is what is the condition of your heart. What matters is what is the condition of your ears Do you give your ears to God's word, and how do you respond when you hear what God says? When you read or hear his word, does his word fall on deaf ears when it comes to you, uncircumcised ears? Or do you listen and trust what God is saying so you follow him? What about today as you hear his voice? After Stephen lays this foundation of Abraham and the patriarchs, he he begins to build his case by speaking of Joseph. Joseph, look at verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Verse 10, and rescued Joseph out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers could find no food. Big problem. Verse 12. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit there. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Verse 14. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred... Seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. All right, here's the key you need to, to get from the Joseph story for this thread. This brother Joseph that Israel rejected ended up being exalted by God as ruler and ended up being a deliverer for Israel, giving them food and shelter in Egypt during the great famine. That starts the pattern. Okay, next Stephen is going to talk about another Jewish man who was rejected by his brothers, but then ended up being exalted by God as their ruler and being used of God to deliver them. Just like Joseph. His name is Moses. Now, this section about Moses is the longest of Stephen's speech, and I hope you can guess why. It's because he's being accused of speaking against Moses. It begins in verse 11. But as the time of the promise... Did I say 11? 17. 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt... And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Now now verse 23 is going to begin the story of the first time Moses saved Israel, and the first time he was rejected by them also. Verse 23, when Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? Verse 27. But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust Moses aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you, Moses, want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, this is not the end of the Moses story. God is going to use Moses to save his people in an even greater way and his people will reject Moses in an even greater way too. Look at verse 30 now. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Verse 33. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. Now come, I will send you to Egypt. 35. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Answer. This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So when they rejected Moses, they were rejecting the ruler and redeemer God raised up for them. Now that that should make uh, bells go off in your head of things we've heard earlier in Acts. Several times we've heard the apostles proclaiming Christ as the ruler and redeemer God has sent to his people. So, so do you see how Stephen's using Old Testament history to set up this rebuke of verse 51? As your fathers did, so, so do you like the brothers of Joseph, like the men around Moses. You also rejected the ruler and redeemer God. Sent Jesus. All right, verse 37 now. Stephen, Stephen now reminds his hearers that Moses prophesied about Christ. Look at verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. All right, that's Deuteronomy 18, 15. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers, and it is to him that you shall listen. So Moses pointed away from himself toward the greater prophet-redeemer that was coming after him. And Moses said, we should listen to him when he comes. Okay, Stephen's, Stephen's argument's picking up speed here. Am I the one opposing Moses? Is it not you who are opposing Moses by rejecting Jesus, the one that Moses foretold and said we should listen to? Like Jesus told the Jewish religious leaders, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. You know, there are a lot of people in the world, I mean millions and millions and millions of people in the world, who claim to believe and follow one of the great prophets of God, Moses, Abraham. But what the Bible teaches us is you cannot be, you cannot be on the side of Abraham or Moses or Isaiah or any other true prophet of God unless you receive Jesus as Lord and Christ. In verse 38, the story of Israel moves forward. Okay, and now we arrive with Moses and the people at Mount Sinai, where where Moses received God's law to give to the people that he just delivered out of Egypt. Verse 38, this Moses is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. And there he received living oracles, the word of God, the law, to give to us. Well, what, what was Israel doing while Moses was up on that mountain receiving God's law to give to them? Verse 39 tells us, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Israel was breaking God's law literally from the moment Moses received it. At the same time that he was on Sinai, receiving this law from God that said, you shall have no other gods, you shall fashion no other gods. Meanwhile, at the base of the same mountain, the people thrust Moses aside and made other gods to worship. Again, Stephen is saying, will you accuse me of never ceasing to oppose God's law? If you want to see people opposing God's law and God's lawgiver, you just need to look down our family tree. They've been doing that from the beginning. And then look in the mirror and see that you're just like them. Stephen, Stephen's laying it on thick here, I think. Now I want to give us a word of caution. At this point, as we overhear Stephen talk about Israel's consistent resistance to God's law and God's salvation, we need to be careful that we do not respond in our hearts with a false sense of spiritual superiority or a condescending self-righteousness. According to the message of the Bible, the Israelites are not the black sheep of humanity. As they sinned and strived against God, they were really representative of all sinful humanity. The story of Israel is meant to show us that all peoples are black sheep. We all have sinned. We all have gone astray like sheep. No one seeks for God on his own apart from God's grace. And the Apostle Paul tells us that in Romans 9 through 11. He talks a lot about how Israel rejected Christ. And then he speaks very directly to Gentile Christians. And he says, you be careful. Don't be arrogant. Do not become proud, but fear. See how they were cut off because of their unbelief. And so keep a close watch on yourself so that you don't fall into the same. Don't be wise in your own eyes, he says. So don't trust in yourself that you are righteous, thinking you're not like other sinners. Now, what you should do when, when you hear about the, the uh, continual resistance of, of Israel to God, it should make you cling all the more closely to Jesus and rely on His grace and the righteousness we can have in Christ. So be careful how you listen today as Stephen rebukes Israel's leaders by way of Israel's history. Be watchful over yourself and be grateful to God for the power of His grace. Now the next part of Stephen's defense, he quotes the book of Amos to recount how Israel kept breaking God's law with with more idolatry after Sinai, and for that God brought judgment upon them. exile. Out of the land into Babylon. Look at verse 42. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephim. The images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon, will you condemn me for setting aside the law of Moses? Remember the exile. Our whole nation set aside the law of Moses and received God's judgment because of it. Again, like, like Jesus told the leaders of Israel in his day, has not Moses given you the law? And yet none of you keeps the law. John seven nineteen. Jesus also said to them, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. There is is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope, John 5, 45. What does that mean? On the basis of the law of Moses, you stand accused and guilty and sentenced to God's judgment like your forefathers. All those who hope in Moses do, meaning All those who hope in their own efforts to keep God's law, Jew or Gentile, all who hope in their own law-keeping will end up under God's judgment, like Israel did in exile in Babylon. This history that Stephen retells in, in these last few verses, that should put to rest any hope. Any person has that they could be right with God just by their own ability to keep God's law. We need a Savior who is more than a lawgiver. We need more than another Moses. We need a Savior from God who can deliver us from our sin and from the judgment we deserve for our law-breaking. That's what we have in Christ. That's what you can have in Christ for free, if you will only trust Him. Because He bore our sins in His body when He died on the cross. He suffered for our sins in our place, and then He rose from the dead. Stephen's defense also teaches us, doesn't it, that we desperately need for God to give us circumcised hearts and circumcised ears. And this too we can have in Christ. Colossians 2, 11 through 13 says that in Christ we are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, meaning it's the work of God on our hearts. It's the putting off of our sinful flesh that happens when we are crucified, buried, and raised with Christ. Whenever we trust Him and are united to Him. And and then in another place, at the end of Romans 2, the Apostle Paul says that, that the circumcision that counts is the circumcision of the heart. And he says that that is effected by the Spirit. The Spirit changes our hearts. The Spirit opens our ears. And we get the Spirit in Christ. Everything we need, we have in Christ. It does not matter how many generations of resistance to God have come before you in your family tree. It does not seal your fate. The Spirit of God is mighty enough to break the pattern, to change your heart, to open your ears. No matter how entrenched that pattern has been in your ancestors, the Spirit can turn your heart to God and turn your heart toward God's law and turn your heart toward God's Savior. God's grace is greater. Now, next in in chapter 7, Stephen makes his final arguments to the charges brought against him. First, as I said before, he, he wraps up the point he's been making about the temple. That's in 44 through 50. We saw that last week. After that, Stephen ties up the point he's been making about Moses and the law, and that comes to a head in an intense rebuke in verses 51 through 53. All right, so here is the second main point of the passage. We've already been told of, of a pattern of resistance that was consistent before Christ. And now we hear... Of a pattern of resistance that culminated in Christ, against Christ. A pattern of resistance culminated against Christ. That's when it came to a head. So, so look at these verses with me now. Verse 51 through 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears... You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You haven't kept the law, just like your fathers. In in verse 52, pointed out the pattern. Your fathers persecuted all the prophets, even those who came after Moses. Your, Your forefathers killed those who foretold Christ, and now you have killed the Christ who was foretold. Israel's long-standing pattern of rejecting God's prophet came to a head here in the rejection of Christ. Now, Stephen began this confrontation by calling his hearers stiff-necked, verse 51. And that label fits perfectly with the point Stephen's making because that is exactly what God called their fathers when they broke the law at Mount Sinai four times. God said that in response to the golden calf incident. This is a stiff-necked people, Exodus 32 through 34. Now what does it mean to be stiff-necked? Think of a horse or a mule that's very stubborn and you cannot turn them in any new direction. Whenever you try, they stiffen their neck and will not turn or be led. We want to be people whom God can turn in a new direction simply by speaking to us. In his word, Psalm 32 exhorts us, don't be like horse or mule that can only be controlled by a bit and bridle. Turn freely when God speaks. The, the end of verse 51 emphasized how much this was a pattern, this stiff-neckedness. For Stephen Severs. The end of 51 says, you always resist. You are constantly resisting the Holy Spirit. Now, that raises another question. How does one resist the Holy Spirit? The same way, by resisting the Word of God. God spoke to man as the Spirit inspired the prophets and the apostles. And God speaks to man through the Spirit-inspired words that they wrote down in the Scripture. We, we resist the Spirit by resisting the words that He inspired, gave to us. And that's why right after saying, you always resist the Holy Spirit, Stephen says in verse 52, you persecute the prophets, because they're the ones who spoke God's Word by the Spirit. And then right before saying, you always resist the Spirit, Stephen said, you have uncircumcised ears, because this is about what you do with God's Word. The way to resist the Holy Spirit is to not listen to God's word and not be led by it. God said through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah six ten. Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn, and they take no pleasure in it. Perhaps some would say I would never resist the Holy Spirit." have, have you ever really refused to, to really listen to God's word have you have you ever stiffened your neck and not been turned by God's word have you ever not not taken pleasure in God's word what Stephen told the Jewish leaders is that you were always doing that just like your fathers so uh, as you consider this pattern ask yourself does, does this family pattern fit your life are you the spiritual children of these fathers do you share the distinctive family traits a stiff neck and uncircumcised ears cry out to God Ask for his help. Ask for his mercy. You will find both in Christ. Now there's something else we need to notice about these patterns of resistance from Israel's history, which culminate against Christ. So consistently, have you noticed, what's marvelous is that God uses the resistance that his ruler and redeemer faces to accomplish his saving purposes. All right, Joseph was rejected by his brothers, but God turned that rejection as what worked out for the rescue of his brothers. If he wasn't sent to Egypt, he never could have delivered them from the famine. And likewise, Moses was rejected by his Jewish brothers, but God turned that rejection for for good too. Moses went to Midian after his brothers rejected him. That's where God met him and sent him back to Egypt to rescue them out of slavery. And and Jesus, likewise, was rejected by his countrymen, but their rejection of him, killing him on a cross, was the very thing God used to rescue all his people, counting all their sins against Christ on that cross. So all these repeated rejections that climax in the rejection of Christ all ultimately show... The incredible wisdom and goodness and mercy of God because time and again God turns the rejection around and makes it the means by which He rescues, even how He rescues some of those rejectors. What an amazing God. He God turns the consistent rejection of man into man's redemption. Now, now this wonderful and terrible pattern that we've seen today repeats itself one final time in our passage. And this is the third and last main point. A pattern of resistance continued after Christ. A pattern of resistance continued after Christ. Now, continued against whom? Well, against another messenger of God to his people against another who spoke of Christ. Of course, Stephen. The, the Jewish leaders proved Stephen's point by continuing to resist the words of the Spirit that he was speaking. By, by treating him the same way they treated Christ, the same way their fathers treated the prophets. Just like Jesus told his disciples would happen, like Matt read from Matthew 5. Now, now there is some irony here In this story, when we see that Stephen is purposefully cast as a Moses-like figure in this passage. Right right after Stephen was accused of speaking against Moses, he starts to look a lot like Moses. Do you remember? At the end of chapter 6, his face started shining, just like the face of Moses used to do in Exodus 34. The very last line of Acts 6 says, all who sat in the council saw that Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. And, and if you're familiar with the writings of Moses in the Bible, when, when you hear the words of Stephen's final confrontation, at, down in verses 51 through 53, you, you would notice, wow, this sounds a lot like the kinds of things Moses said to Israel in Deuteronomy. So so the Jewish leaders were unwittingly showing they were the ones who were opposed to Moses by opposing the one who was like Moses, Stephen, the witness to Christ. Now now look at verse 54 and and see really in the story how, how this pattern of resistance continued after Christ. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. What, what a picture. They literally plugged their ears. This, this powerfully illustrated what Stephen just said was true about them. Uncircumcised ears. Okay, look at verse 58 now. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, put him to death. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, there's more to see in this story, and we'll see it next week. But just see now that their fathers killed the prophets. They killed the righteous one. The prophets were told. But now they kill this follower of the righteous one too. It's the same pattern. It it continued then. It continued in Acts 7. it, It continues still that those who serve and speak of God should expect to be opposed with him. Those who follow Christ should expect to be resisted with him. This is part of counting the cost of following Christ. Do you really want to be His disciple and receive the salvation He's offering? In light of this pattern that we see, there's really only two options on the table for us. You can join the resistance of the world against God, or you can be resisted by the world with God. It is better to be with God. None of us, though, should expect to escape this pattern of resistance. Choose this day whom you will join, the resistors or the resisted. It's worth it to choose to be opposed with God. God will have the final victory. It was worth it for Stephen. Even though Stephen was stoned, does does it look like it wasn't worth it for Stephen. Stephen saw the glory of God. He saw Jesus standing at God's right hand. And then he went to them in death. So God turned this rejection of Stephen also for good. He turned it into the completion of Stephen's redemption. And if we remember how this story about Stephen plugs into the wider story of Acts, we can see another big way God brought redemption out of this rejection. Remember, what happens next? The gospel goes out from Jerusalem to the nations. As it was with Joseph, as it was with Moses, as it was with Jesus, this rejection of Stephen also turns out for the advancement of God's saving purposes. We can trust God will use any opposition that we might ever face as Christ's disciples to do the same thing, to advance somehow God's saving purposes in the world. Perhaps some of you, even now, can look back on your life and see God, how, how somehow God has used the sin of others to direct your path to salvation in Christ. Perhaps you can see some way God has used some rejection of him, some opposition to his people to spread the gospel to others, maybe even to you. This pattern is still happening today. God is is turning rejections into redemptions. He is a marvelous God. Stephen's courtroom defense is the great preface for the gospel going out from Jerusalem. Now Paul reflects on this with great wonder in Romans 11 because Paul sees and worships God because in God's incomprehensibly great sovereign plan, Israel's initial rejection of Christ leads to the redemption of, of all nations in Christ. That's that's what's about to play out in real time in the book of Acts that we see. Right after they resist Stephen, the gospel goes out. Samaritans start getting saved. Gentiles start getting saved. Fast forward 2,000 years. Here all of us are worshiping God in the name of Jesus. This is amazing. This should make you want to exclaim with Paul. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. To him be glory forever. What a great God to do this. God, you are great. Your wisdom is so high. Your grace is so powerful that you can overcome all of man's resistance and rejections to save an innumerable multitude of sinners from all nations in Christ. God, I pray that you would uh, increase our wonder at your wisdom. God, I pray that you would uh, make us to, to be those who are willing to suffer reproach with Christ, with Stephen, with Christ's people all over the world today. God, and I pray that you would convince us more deeply, even even now, that it is worth it to have Christ. Anything is worth it. Show us the great treasure of eternal life, of knowing you all over again. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.